I'm Jonathan Mosen, and I've got a new TV. In an episode 37 of Mosen at Large, I'll be taking you on a tour of the new Sony X8500G Smart TV with AirPlay, Chromecast, and it's all ready for the new Sonos Arc. There's a lot more tech discussion in the mix as well, and we're unlocked. Mosen at Large Podcast. If you'd like to make a contribution that might be included on Mosen at Large, you can phone the listener line. That number in the United States is 864-60-MOSEN, 864-606-6736. You can also make an audio or written contribution by email, jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. We play a selection of the contributions we receive every week. It would be helpful if your message is concise due to the volume of contributions we receive, and your contribution may be edited for brevity and clarity. A reminder that to help you navigate this long podcast, it is segmented by chapter. All the good podcast apps support chapters. That means you can skip forward and back between sections. We are out. We are loose. We are unlocked. Hope you have had a good week. Yes, on Thursday morning, New Zealand's lockdown ended and we're all out. The shops are open. The restaurants are open. And for the last, what, four out of the last seven days here, we have had zero new cases in the country. People continue to recover. And when we have had cases, it's been like one or two. And those cases are from existing clusters. Everybody understands the link. So at this point, there is no community transmission in New Zealand. It's been an absolutely remarkable effort from the New Zealand people and particularly an exemplary bit of leadership from our Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. It is just amazing. And there are some challenges, though, in this more cautious, unlocked world. And I think some of those have a blindness angle. And so when Bonnie comes down later to do the Bonnie Bulletin, which I know is some people's favorite part of the show, I mean, it's one of mine, we'll have a good chat about what it's like being out there now in unlocked New Zealand, because it is a little bit different. So if you're interested in that, we will definitely be talking about that a little bit later as New Zealand returns to some semblance of considerable normality, although it certainly isn't completely the way that it was before. hope that you are having a good week wherever you are and that you are able to cope with the pandemic situation where it's at in your particular locale. It is very tough still for many people. And we'll be looking actually today on the show at the pandemic from a range of angles and hopefully coming up with some useful information and perhaps discussion points as well. Let's take a look at some email that's been around a while in this crazy backlog we're getting. Haya says, I use iPhone with voiceover and voice control. And without headphones, it hears itself. Sometimes I touch the name of a podcast or some other element in an app, and it hears that, turns that into a command, and asks me if I want to do that. I can press execute or cancel, but cancel never works. However, a worse example of the phone hearing itself is when I try to write something. If I use dictation, it might hear me twice over unless I use commands mode. It doesn't always understand that phrase, though. Often, it ends up hearing what I wrote and rewriting its interpretation of that ad nauseum. I can't make it stop. Make it stop! And I have to delete everything and start over with headphones. Its interpretations of what it said to itself isn't always accurate. Two, 
I use AirPods, and when I used to travel on the bus, it wouldn't always hear me. That's when I might need it most. I want to leave my phone in my pouch and have my hands free. Do you have any tips? I really don't want to yell. Three. Lately, when I listen to something such as podcasts on my phone and the screen locks, it says voice control is no longer listening. I have audio ducking on usually, but the sound doesn't come back to full volume, and I have to turn it up quite a bit. If I use Siri or unlock the phone, the volume is of course way too loud. This started when iOS 13.4 was released and wasn't fixed with the following update. Did you or anyone notice this? And is there a solution? Four. I don't know whether or not this is related, but during the same time frame, I've noticed a few things. Voiceover likes to repeat whatever's at the top of the window every now and then. It likes to repeat the name of the app it's focused on ad nauseum. Podcasts, podcasts, podcasts. It only stops when I change focus and go back. It happens even when I haven't touched my phone. Sometimes after this, or even without this happening, it just stops responding and becomes completely sluggish, and I have to reboot the phone. This happens at least once a day, and I really don't want to reboot my phone that often. Yesterday. I required visual assistance to get it running again. Again, have you or the listeners noticed this? And are there any solutions? I have an iPhone eight, and I've had it since December. Five on the Mac, voice control usually works better than the iPhone, but you can't use it to run either device completely, and that's the point. I can't get voice control to get to menu bars, even though you're supposed to. And I can't get it to find text, even though it's supposed to do that too. I'm a translator, and the writing and editing commands would speed things up to no end. How come I can't use it to jump between documents and pages? Also, when I work on a file, it stops hearing my commands. It might start hearing them if I restart the whole computer, but eventually it stops again. If I listen to a podcast, it might add that into the text because it hears itself. I always have two documents open: the source and my translation. Sometimes it will hear me and write something in the source file which I don't want to edit. Again, has anyone else noticed this? And are there any solutions? Well, there's a lot there. The first thing I would say is I would just give up on using the microphones and AirPods for anything. It really frustrates me when I get a call from somebody on public transport using AirPods. It is so hard to hear them that I basically say, "Look, either disconnect the AirPods and call me on your proper phone that has a decent microphone, or just don't call me." You know, it's it's really bad. So if it's that bad for phone calls, I'm not surprised that it's that bad for voice commands. I'd also say that sort of talking to your phone in a way that would be audible enough for voice commands on the bus could be kind of quite disconcerting for fellow passengers. I would say that voice control has really deteriorated, and I'm not sure since when. So what I used to do was I would use it when I was getting ready in the morning a lot. I'd, for example, open my Twitter client, and while my hands were busy, you know, getting organised, 
I would say, swipe left, swipe left, swipe, and I'd go through my tweets overnight, and it would work perfectly. Now, and I'm using the latest beta of iOS 13.5, by the way, so I'm not sure if this is a beta thing because I haven't needed to do this for some time, but I was having a play with it after this email came in. Swipe left doesn't do what it used to do. When I open Twitterific and I run voice commands and I say swipe left, it doesn't work. The only way I can get it to do what it used to do is use the command voiceover select previous item. And I'm certainly not going to sit there and navigate tweet by tweet by saying voiceover select previous item. So voice control has somewhere along the line transmogrified from a remotely useful tool to a completely useless tool for my use case. I never really used it for dictation or anything like that, so I can't comment on a lot of those things. I can comment on the audio ducking. Audio ducking has been a real problem in recent times. I often find that in certain circumstances, audio ducking never ducks up again, and things get very quiet, and the only way I've been able to fix that is to turn voiceover off, and then suddenly the sound whooshes back up again, and then I turn voiceover on, and it's back to normal. But Sure as anything, something else will happen and you have to do it all over again. So there's definitely ongoing problems with audio ducking. If anybody is making extensive use of voice control on your iThing or your Mac, then please let us know how you're getting on with it. But I guess I've become a bit disillusioned with it. To be fair, I guess we are not the target market for this. Initially, the Apple accessibility people were quite adamant when voice control was first announced, this was not intended for voiceover users. And then voiceover users responded and said, actually, this could be quite helpful. So they've added a few voiceover commands. But whether it's intentional or a bug, I have found it become much less useful in recent times. More on the Sonos Move now. Nick G writes, while listening to your latest podcast for your take on the latest Sonos news, I heard a voicemail describing the Sonos Move in general terms. I'd like to add to it. The Move is taller than the Play One or the One, as well as fatter and heavier. Sounds like me in the pre-low carb days. (laughs) Anyway, unless you're carrying a large bag, taking this out on the road isn't going to be easy, he says. You do feel the three kilogram weight, but I find the cylindrical vertical construction and the recessed carrying notch, not a handle, an advantage over lighter but longer speakers, such as my buddy's JBL boombox. Boombox. Of course, your mileage may vary. About the audio performance, the move is somewhat difficult to describe, but I'll do my best. This is because Sonos chose a tweeter that fires sound downwards into a waveguide. The waveguide attempts to disperse the sound evenly at the cost of on-axis response. The tuning around that downward firing tweeter and waveguide is a bit dot 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 relaxed. So much so that the speaker appears dark because it seems to do a bad job with transients. Electronic hip-hop highs tend to suffer most from this, as well as hi-hats in general. Yet the speaker produces more natural high frequencies, which are perceived to be higher in pitch just fine, such as orchestral percussion. Our friend Derek Lane, Derek Lane is in my ear. When I explain this, calls it a relaxed tuning, and I tend to agree with him. 
I think it lacks the play one accuracy on the top end, but I have faith that it will open up as time goes by and they perfect auto true play, which already helps the sound enough where I don't find myself actually missing the treble it doesn't always have. It's interesting that they have auto true play on that device, but on no other Sonos device. Anyway, in general, he says, it's a pleasing sound, and that's before I mentioned the bass, which is unbelievable for a speaker at size. It's not a Play 5 by any stretch of the imagination, but I got it to project 34 hertz into the room and 40 hertz clean. I only know of one portable speaker at a similar price that gets down to 40 at all, and it's larger and heavier. As a result, I enjoy my Sonos Move, Now, I hope I can soon use it for its intended purpose. Will you be upgrading to S2? I hope it's accessible, concludes Nick. Dude, if it's not accessible, you will be hearing blind people quite justifiably complaining universally. My God, that would be an absolute disaster, especially for those of us who have like 15 Sonos devices. I'm absolutely confident that S2 will be accessible. Sonos has demonstrated in recent years a laudable commitment to accessibility. It's possible there'll be a few glitches to begin with because my understanding is it is a very significant update to their software, essentially a rewrite, but I feel confident that if there are any glitches, they will be sorted out. There's my optimistic take. We don't have too long to wait now until we get S2 and can put it through its paces. Hello, Jonathan. It's uh, Saddam checking in once again. Hello, Saddam. I just wanted to talk about the note-taker versus using a Braille display with a mainstream product like an iPhone. First, some background. I actually went through high school and uh, early university with a note-taker, specifically the, the Braille note line. I've also used the Braille Sense Polaris a little bit, but I really really like the Focus 40 Blue 5th Gen from Vispero. And I'm actually going to be ordering one for myself fairly soon. And I think that combined with JAWS really gives a superb Braille experience. You can connect it via USB to your laptop and use contracted Braille input. And it's a really great situation because or a great way of using braille with your laptop because when you need speech you just use the laptop by itself and when you need braille you can connect this braille display or you can connect the braille display to your laptop or desktop and you have good quality braille support really love the design it's very ergonomic and a really nice product so and when you're ready to upgrade your iPhone, you just buy a new iPhone or new laptop. So I think I really love the modular design of a Braille display in a phone or a Braille display in a PC because you're spending a lot less. You know, note takers are probably like eight or $9,000 these days. And you're not really getting bang for your buck. You're not really getting much uh, for that uh, price. And you know, a lot of them are overpriced for what they do and... A lot of them run, you know, clunky old um, software that is outdated, old versions of Android and that kind of thing. So for my needs, I'm a big champion of the Focus 40 Blue. I love that particular display, but of course there are other displays out there. But the Focus 40 Blue and JAWS really give a premium experience. 
Good to hear from you, said I. And before everybody starts bombarding me with emails going, what? Eight or nine thousand dollars. Where is he getting that from? Saddam is, of course, in Australia, and so those are Australian dollars, and that price would be about right. On the flip side, here's Darren McDougall, who says, Hi, Jonathan, this is my first contribution, though I'm a long-time fan. Oh, you thankfully introduced me to Sonos, and I bought iOS without the eye each year, the moment it came out. I would like to add my two cents about blindness note-takers. Please do, Darren. But before you do, I'd love to know where that expression comes from. The soup drinker, where does the expression my two cents worth come from? Here's something I found on Wikipedia. Okay. My two cents and its longer version put my two cents in is an American idiomatic expression taken from the original English idiom to put in my tuppenny worth or my two cents. My tuppenny worth. Yes, but why? All right, all right, we're not going to get anywhere with that. So I'll go on with Darren's very elucidating email. For me, he says, the note taker is a primary tool, particularly at work. If I'm on a teleconference and need to take notes during the call, my Braille Sense Polaris fits the bill. I also often use it to read work-related documents in Braille with a capital B, good person, particularly in this time of quarantine when I do not have access to my Braille embosser. I can transfer documents from my laptop to the Polaris and read them in Braille. Often I'm listening to one document on JAWS and reading another in Braille on the Polaris as editing and comparing documents is a large part of my job. I find a dedicated note-taker the best way to accomplish this task. I also find a note-taker to be a great option if I want to jot something down or make some notes on the fly, much as Bonnie mentioned a couple of weeks ago. For me, the note-taker plays a major role, especially vocationally, and I hope there always will be a market for these devices in spite of their high cost. Thank you very much, Darren. I guess I have a couple of questions um, from that. In the context of this discussion, is there any of those tasks that you would not be able to do with an iPhone and a Braille display? Because I can't actually think of one. I mean, you can take notes, you can you can read documents and compare, you could do all those things and have, you know, state-of-the-art device and just... You know, replace the smartphone and all those good things. So it would be interesting to understand what advantage you think a dedicated note-taker gives you over those solutions. The other thing is you're mentioning of a Braille embosser. Do you know, I can't remember the last time I read hard copy Braille. I cannot remember. It it could possibly be at a at a funeral service for a blind person. I think that might have been the last time I read hard copy Braille. You're going to, yeah, I think I think it probably was actually. And, you know, finding the little Braille uh, order of service under the seat, which is, of course, very welcome. But um, I'm interested in that discussion, too, because for me, I haven't read hard copy Braille sort of on a day to day basis for a very long time. So it just goes to show there are all these different perspectives and it's nice to explore the different use cases. For example... Hey, Jonathan, it's Nicole Holmes from Sydney, Australia here. Thanks so much for your show. I really enjoy it when I'm awake on a Sunday morning um, and also the podcast. 
Um, I wanted to comment on the Braille display versus note taker thing. It's something I'm still wrestling with, although I think Ulysses has somewhat changed the game and once I'm a bit more skilled with that, it'll be really nice. I wanted to ask you how you do presentations using your Braille display and your iPhone. I've tried it a few times, but it seems a little clunky and sometimes the Braille display disconnects from my phone. And so how do you manage those kinds of issues? Um, and just, yeah, really quickly, quickly accessing your documents and presenting, um, on the fly when you're out and about, um, it will be really handy to know exactly how you, you deal with it and, and what sort of strategies you have. Thanks very much. Thanks, Nicole. Great to hear from you in Sydney. Hope everything's going well over there for you in Australia. Well, you talking about the brow display unpairing sometimes is a really good reason for having a discussion like this because it does allow us to crystallize some of the legitimate objections that people are having based on the equipment that they have. For example, Gordon Luke mentioned last week in a DM that I didn't catch up with until after the show because it gets so busy I don't often really check my Twitter DMs, but he mentioned that he has a Braille Edge 40 which is a HIMSS product, and since iOS 13, he says the pairing has become really unreliable and that he has to pair on a daily basis. He also says, by the way, he's in the market for an 80-cell display, and can anybody recommend one? I know that the Focus 5th generation has an 80-cell version. That'd be a lovely, sleek, long piece of equipment. And the one thing I can say is that while there have been occasions where brailing very fast has caused some bizarre behavior, and I absolutely acknowledge that, which has involved sort of rapid disconnecting and reconnecting. Just for reading, I have found the pairing of the focus line since they started supporting the iPhone to be absolutely, utterly rock solid. So if there are people having different experiences with different displays, clearly that's going to really significantly influence this note-taker versus iPhone and a brow display debate. And I completely understand why if you are unfortunate enough to have a display whose driver is for whatever reason flaky, you're not going to feel inclined to give up your note taker, are you, if it's flaking out all over the place? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, it's hard enough getting a job in the first place if you're a blind person. And then if you have that job and you find that your equipment is constantly flaking out on you, you're not going to be happy. So, I completely understand why people might be concerned about that. And one of the things about third-party things like this, where you have a device, a Braille device manufactured by a company, and then it's interfacing to an operating system and another piece of hardware manufactured by another company, is if it's not working the way it ought to be working, you can get shunted from pillar to post, can't you? And that can be frustrating when no one takes responsibility for fixing the situation. And it's not so bad with blindness companies because generally they're pretty accessible. I mean, you don't have to make too much effort to know who the movers and shakers are in those smaller blindness companies and to ping them. And they generally do respond, you know, and, and tech support's generally pretty responsive and stuff. But when you get to companies the size of Apple, and you send a message to their accessibility support, and they'll kind of send you this canned response, and it's actually quite difficult sometimes to get to. 
somebody who can really make a difference, somebody who can actually change the code or fix the bug and take the issue seriously. So, you know, if you've got one of those displays, I, I completely get that. Now, to answer your question specifically about how I handle presentations, I either use Voice Dream Reader or increasingly Ulysses. My personal preference has always been to reverse the thumb keys all the way back to actually reversing the advance bar on my Braille lights. Generally, what happens by default is that when you read a Braille line, you then advance the Braille display by pushing something on the right hand end once you've got to the end of the the Braille line. That doesn't work for me because I read Braille with two hands, so I'm reading half the line with my left hand, and at the same time, I'm reading half the line with my right hand, and I find that the easiest way for me is to press the button at the left-hand end of the Braille display, whatever that button is. I really do like Braille displays with thumb keys because it means I don't have to take my reading fingers off the display or do contortions in any way, and I can just scroll along. I'm intrigued by those handy tech displays that have that ability to automatically sense when you're reaching the end of a line and they automatically scroll. I've not spent long enough with one to know if I could get to the point where I could make that work in my daily workflow, but they are, uh, on the face of it, lovely displays. But anyway, to get back to your question about making presentations. So if I'm just reading from notes, I will use Voice Dream Reader or Ulysses. I reverse the thumb keys and then I just read and I find that really reliable. I don't get many truncated lines or I never get any repeating lines or anything like that. So I can have a really smooth flow when I'm doing presentations with my Braille display that way. So Voice Dream Reader, uh, load it in. It's really easy. You can just take a Word document, uh, pop it in Dropbox or iCloud Drive or any of the file sharing services that Voice Dream Reader supports and then import it into Voice Dream and then open it up and read. Simple. Now, if I'm running a PowerPoint presentation, what I used to do was have my speaking notes on my iPhone and I would read the speaking notes while running the PowerPoint from the PC. What I do actually do now is I take my laptop and my Braille display and I have my laptop paired with my Braille display via Bluetooth in that particular situation. The fewer cables you have to worry about, the better. And then I have my speaking notes embedded into the PowerPoint presentation and I have actually got a hotkey that I modified from the JAWS default keys to make it easy to just bring up my speaker's notes for each slide. And I read those and they just pop up on my Braille display. They don't pop up on the uh, on the screen of the PowerPoint slideshow. And then I just advance the slide with the space bar on the Braille display. So I can actually run the entire PowerPoints from my laptop and Braille display. So it really does depend on the context. I don't run a PowerPoint for every presentation that I give. Jesse Mabry is writing in and says, hello, Jonathan, I have really been enjoying the podcast version of your show and hope to tune in live for the first time later today. Oh, scary. One of my primary job duties is researching and recommending access technology for blind grade schoolers. I would love to fully embrace a switch to eye devices and braille displays from the note takers we routinely purchase. I have one major concern though, and would appreciate feedback 
in case there's already a solution I don't know about. The vast majority of the Braille readers with a capital B, oh, this is just tremendous, I work with, use Nemeth in their math classes for both reading and writing. They refer to their assignments in Braille hard copy and then submit their answers to their teachers from a note taker, either by email or through a Google app. It's so much quicker now than the days of yore. Ah, the days of yore. I remember them well. (laughs) When you had to do it all on a Perkins and get it interlined manually. Is there any way to create Nemo than iOS with a built-in or third party? I've seen the option in VoiceOver's Braille settings to display equations in Nemeth, but I assume that's for reading, not writing, and I don't know how well it works. This is the only key respect in which iOS and a Braille display would seem to fall short for education unless I'm missing something. Thanks for any thoughts you or the crowd might have. Thank you very much, Jesse. Good question. And I don't have an answer. It's not something that I personally have to do. And you see, this is a really cool thing about discussions like this, is sometimes there's not a hard and fast answer. It can depend on your use case. So I don't know. I would observe, I understand the objections that people had about the original plan for UEB, which was a universal code that just embraced everything, including mathematics. And people said, man, the mathematics in UEB are just far too bulky. And so what America chose to do was adopt UEB and keep Nemeth for mathematics. So they sort of partially adopted UEB. And of course, if they have adopted the full UEB, then this wouldn't be an issue, but it is. And so it would be good to just pass this out there and see what the situation is. I think there is a real advantage in giving kids iPads, say, and that is that they are mainstream devices that when they take them home, parents can help to some degree with. But obviously, that's not a sufficient advantage over making sure that uh, children have the mathematics education that they need, because this is an area, the STEM subjects are an area where blind people have historically struggled a bit. And there's no way we should be putting any impediments in the way of blind kids learning maths. And um, if it takes a note taker in that context, then they should jolly well have a note taker to make sure they're getting used to the STEM subjects. So uh, thank you for that great inquiry. It will be interesting to just get other people's takes on that. I also wrote a blog post a long time ago when Apple's Braille wasn't as robust as it is now making that point. But I think the Nemeth one may well still apply. So I hope we get some feedback on that. Jonathan, it's Tanya Harrison here. I've just got some comments on Zoom. For me personally, I've used it for a couple of years and one of the groups I've been part of is a a private support group. And... I find that when I started in that group, I would just have my video turned off because I wasn't sure how to hold the camera. I now have my camera set up, uh, set up that if, say, I'm going to actually need to record a video, I can put my phone on a certain place on my desk and the camera is going to be at the right angle. If I'm sitting in a chair in front of that desk, and 
sometimes in our group we do little music performances and things. So that is when I tend to turn the camera on. However, I wish there was an easy way of being able to do what the others in the in groups do, and that's just simply be able to sit in a chair and know how to hold the camera so that I'm not having to just always get up to that desk. Um, in this group I'm in, we get a certain time um, amount of time to talk about things and they'll say, you know, the the chair of the group will say, it's my turn. Well, if I get up, go to the desk, set the phone up, then take it off, cam- off uh, you know, put camera back on, you know, that can take some time. So that's the thing. I agree with you. There is a very big lack of training on how to do this. Um, and I agree with Bonnie because... I've never seen and I've never really got comfortable with the camera. And just another thing too about Zoom for blindies and I've recently been on a Zoom group full of blindies and the thing I've found whilst I've used Zoom in the past two years is if you can, use a headset if you're using it on your phone so that the group isn't being swamped with voiceover. And even for me, when I'm in a group with fighter people, you know, I've got quite a few clocks, so I tend to mute myself unless I'm actually either the main one speaking or want to chip in with a comment. And even when I chip in with a comment, I try not to do so when it's clock time every quarter hour. Thank you very much, Tanya. I would say regarding your camera observations that if you can get on a FaceTime call with a sighted person who you trust and has a bit of time, you should be able to get to grips with holding the camera at the right distance probably at about arm's length from you when you're using the front facing camera which is the one that you would almost always use for video conferencing or video calls of course whatsapp or skype any anybody that you can contact who you trust who is on any of those services and can just give you a bit of feedback it does become second nature. So when I call my kids, for example, they want to see me. They want to see their dad. And now I just do it without thinking because I've had enough experience with the camera that I just hold it at the right length from my face and at the right angle. The FaceTime camera is at the very top of the screen. And so it's on that that side of the phone. And so face it, be about arm's length, and you should be okay. So others, again, may have some tips on how they handle video conferencing. Speaking of conferencing, Facebook has really got into the conferencing space. As I mentioned two or three weeks ago that they were going to, I mentioned this thing called Facebook Rooms, and now they have officially rolled it out. And you can get together with up to 50 people in a Facebook room. This is a uh, deliberate play for the Zoom, uh, Google Meets and all those kind of spaces there. So good luck with that. I try to avoid anything Facebook as much as possible. But if you're one of the people who enjoys being on there, knock yourself out with that new Facebook rooms feature. On a similar kind of subject, here's Louise Redsell who says, Hi, Jonathan, I am really enjoying the podcast and look forward to listening to the new episode every Sunday morning using Castro, which I love thanks to your demo. I was hoping to pick your brains. Well, there's not much left, mate, but you can have what there is. And the brains of fellow listeners are, well, they're in very good shape. 
Due to COVID-19, I am now working from home and fully anticipate this will be the case for the foreseeable future. When I was in the office, I had a splitter box, which enabled me to hear my office phone in one ear and my PC with JAWS in the other. Currently, whilst at home, I'm having to wear a set of earpods connected to my iPhone and a larger headset connected to my PC. This, whilst working, is leading to a lot of tangled wires everywhere, as well as some discomfort at the end of the working day, as I believe the headset is pushing my earpods deeper into my ears. Ouch. I'm thinking there has to be a better way of doing things, and wondered how you and other listeners are managing to listen to audio from their phones and computers at the same time. I did wonder whether some kind of Bluetooth headset might be an option. But much to my frustration, when I try to connect my AirPods or a Bluetooth headset to my work laptop, the audio constantly stutters and is impossible to listen to. I'm thinking it could be because the work laptop is quite basic or because of enhanced security protection that has installed on it. Thanks in advance for any suggestions. And Jonathan, thanks for everything you do for all of us in the blindness community. Oh, thank you very much, Louise. That's really kind. Well, I don't know whether you'd want to go down the route that I do, but in my office, what I have is a really simple mixer. The mixer couldn't be more basic than the one I got. It's just a Behringer mixer, and it's got a microphone channel, which I don't use, and then it's got two channels. And I have a cable going from the mixer to the iPhone dock, which I have in my office. That's another thing I do use in the office is the dock because it keeps the phone upright and it's great for conferencing. But even if I didn't have the dock, I would just have a cable going from the mixer to a 3.5 headphone jack and I'd have the little lightning adapter that Apple sells at the end of it. And then it would plug into the iPhone. And then in the other channel, I have a cable going from the mixer to the headphone jack of my PC. And then I plug headphones into the mixer, one set of headphones into the mixer, or in my case, the cable that connects directly to my hearing aids. But it's just a 3.5 cable. And there you have it. You now have sound coming from both ears, from both devices, and independent volume control of both It may be overkill for some, but, you know, when you're listening to sound all day long, I'm of the view that it's worth doing that. It just makes things really comfortable, it's elegant, and it does the job really well. So if you can get yourself a tiny mixer, then that might well do the job for you. It doesn't have to be a fancy one at all. I mean, obviously, in a work-from-home situation like I'm in now, I work from my office where I've got this voluminous mixer, and that is absolutely <laughs> that is absolutely overkill for a work-from-home situation, except that, you know, I do have, the, have everything coming through this mixer, which is nice. But for a work-from-home situation, I just pick up a really cheap mixer and put everything through it. Here is email from Angie Matney on Braille and Math, who says, Hi, Jonathan. Interesting discussion about use cases for note takers versus displays. As you know, 
I have a graduate degree in mathematics. Having said that, I haven't done much math lately. I'm too busy playing a lawyer. So I should say that my knowledge of UEB maths may not be up to date. But I would like to note one advantage of Nemeth over UEB in addition to the extra noise of UEB. Nemeth is better at presenting non-linear concepts than versions of UEB that I have seen. As an example, consider a complex fraction, which has a fraction as the numerator or denominator of the main fraction. For example, a fraction with two-thirds as the numerator and one-half as the denominator. When a sighted student encounters this, they automatically can perceive the relationship between the numbers because they are looking at it non-linearly. While Nemeth would present this fraction on one line, it has a structure that immediately lets the blind reader know if they are going to encounter a complex fraction. Also, it has different indicators so that it is easy to tell where the different levels of fractionness begin and end. My understanding is that UEB uses the same symbols for all the different levels of fractionness. This means that a blind student can be called unawares by a multi-level fraction. This can cause confusion, and it also means the student has to expend more energy concentrating on keeping track of where they are as they review the fraction. These type of fractions appear relatively early, like during elementary school. So I do think this is a deterrent for blind kids in studying STEM. If I'm wrong about the structure of UEB, I'd be happy to be corrected. Thank you very much, Angie. I appreciate that. And I know that there was a lot of discussion about this in the U.S., And I think broadly as well, you know, around the world that people felt that, you know, while they embraced the concept of UEB, that Nemeth was much more easy for uh, a student to process. know when I first started podcasting? Well, if you don't, I'll tell you. I first started podcasting back in 2004. And the first podcast I did was essentially just making the Mosin explosion in its entirety available as a podcast before I sort of really was aware of some of the royalty implications of doing that. But we took up the whole podcasting malarkey very early. And I've been doing internet radio since before that. And I have to tell you that this week I received the longest email I have ever received in the history of doing podcasts. I mean, this thing was huge. It was bigger than huge and larger than massive. And if I read the whole thing and answered all the things in it, I'd probably be able to do an hour-long podcast in itself, which is a gentle reminder to people to try and keep the uh, emails concise. However, I, I thought what I could do, potentially, depending on the amount of traffic that we get every week, and we're getting a lot at the moment, I could split it up into bite-sized pieces or something. And so if I'm going to do that, I may as well make a little jingle, because this email is going to last me a long time. Imagine, and it's analogous too, 
a big block of chocolate, you know, that you might get from the supermarket, and you put it in the fridge, and if you're really disciplined, you break off a little square of chocolate and you eat it, and then you think, oh, that's nice, and it's not overpowering, it's not overfilling, and there'll be more chocolate for me tomorrow. You know, you have to think of this email like that. Because if you consumed it all at once, you might get a tummy ache or something. Or it certainly overloaded my brain circuit. That I can tell you, it overloaded my brain circuit. So I've I've composed this little jingle. That Tiffany, 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 Tiffany report. Now that's pretty naff, but I made it up myself. And so what can you do? This is from Tiffany H. Jesson. I love the way Americans do that, and it always makes me wonder what the middle initial stands for. Don't think it's Horatio in this case. Um, I would pick Helen if I had to pick. I picked that the H stands for Helen, but I do, I do find it interesting. It's a very American thing. Anyway, Tiffany says, "Hello, Mister Jonathan. Every week I listen to your podcast and have so many responses I want to discuss further. But I figure there are so many other people doing that I restrain from doing so." Now I just couldn't resist. I have compiled a few, or actually several, different topics for discussion slash questions. Sorry for the length. Well, that's okay. We'll just cut it up into bite-sized pieces. Now hold on to your seat. Yes, right. Topic one. Let's see how many of these we can get through. Several weeks ago, when you began your shutdown process, this country has performed an illegal operation and will be shut down. <laughs> You mentioned how your grocery delivery offered the ability for you to be prioritized on the schedule, presumably due to Bonnie and you being blind, making travel and more likely encounters in the store riskier of exposure. I was intrigued, as I had never heard of this being an option, and thought maybe it would be a cause to advocate for. With my internal debates below, I refrained from bringing it up. But more recently, you said it was now possibly being adopted in other countries besides New Zealand. While I sympathise with others who were healthy and otherwise capable of getting to and retrieving items, not wanting to go to the store, besides blindness, there are so many other conditions causing people to be homebound or otherwise unable. To go and gather things among conditions where it is not advised, which says nothing to do with things like raised anxiety. I have used Peapod to deliver my groceries for at least fifteen years, far, far, far many years before any other grocery delivery services were as widely available as they are now. In fact, I know this as being in a delivery region was not my priorities with sidewalks and mass. Transit when picking my last apartment where I lived in Morristown for five years before buying my current home ten years ago. Anyway, until now, I have almost always been able to go online and set up a delivery as soon as tomorrow or possibly the next day if things were really busy around a holiday. For the past two months, any time I go online, they are sold out for two full weeks. This is clearly due to the virus. And like I said, I understand the able-bodied people not wanting to go, but the fact is, it's limiting us who cannot go from getting windows. I am easily able to walk to everything else within a mile of home. Mass transit for work when it is open, 
dry cleaning, drug stores, and all kinds of essentials other than groceries. Going there was not on my priority because I knew I was only planning to use delivery. Going there, even if I was willing to risk myself and deal with store staff, would require taking a bus or Uber, something I'm not willing to do at the moment, and even then, I can only carry so much at a time. This use of the service by able-bodied users in turn is limiting us with no alternatives. On the other hand, am I just being selfish for wanting to be prioritised? Why should my health be any more important than others just because they have the fortune to be able to drive and retrieve things independently? Am I bitter? I hope not, as I do regularly have these types of internal debates of how to improve myself. In either case, as I thought about it further, having these types of priority slots helps those in need, but then does it not similarly provoke all the mayhem we now face with bringing our properly certified service animals in planes and public places that so many unethical liars bring their untrained beasts where they don't belong. Whose job at a grocery store would it be to prove you have a qualifying condition to be prioritised? Should that really be a grocery store decision? That said, many grocery stores are indeed setting aside times of days to shop, which are open specifically only for seniors and others with susceptible conditions that may cause vulnerabilities, like autoimmune diseases. Unfortunately, this doesn't help us who don't drive. I have tried the trick of staying up to midnight, presumably when the next available day, 14 days away, is added to the delivery calendar, but as I waited, it didn't appear. Later I realised Peapod is based out of the Chicago area, so they're an hour behind me. Now I put all my items in the shopping cart ahead of time, and if I go to bed, I set the alarm for 1am, and all I have to do is quickly click the date and check out. I've done the same for several friends, and even my parents in Massachusetts, as they both have compromised immune conditions. Others are catching on as I have seen the date sell out earlier and earlier. First, starting at 5am, then 3.30am. And not all the windows, but some are often sold out by the time I'm done at 1.15. I have a delivery coming on the 19th, so plan to start grabbing the next window right afterward, as I don't know if the same trick will continue to work forever. This is terrifying to think of if slash when it no longer works in the future. Our governor has already extended most of the shelter requirements another month. He has opened some spacious parks, expects to do the same with beaches by Memorial Day in a few weeks, but no word on commercial stores. And that, my friend was just topic one there are seven topics in this email seven okay so i'm going to stop with topic one and i'll come back next week with more but just to say i think it's absolutely appropriate for us to think very carefully about whether we genuinely do need this accommodation because we like to think of ourselves as independent self-sufficient and anything that contradicts that message potentially undermines the narrative i completely get that at the same time I think one thing this pandemic has really taught us is just how vulnerable we can be. 
in certain situations where Mother Nature has her way with the world. And I think that in this particular situation, we are justified in asking for the prioritization. I had no hesitation when I learned that that was available in using it because the way that it was working in our supermarkets, you would not have been able to get assistance to go around the supermarket because you would have breached the physical distancing rules if a store employee had gone around with you. You could, I guess, produce a list, but when you hand over that list, you know, that's not contactless. So even if you handed over a physical list to a store employee and waited for them to go around, I think many store employees would have been very reluctant to take a piece of paper out of your hand that you had been touching. So it's a really difficult situation. And even now that New Zealand is very fortunately so well led that we have been able to come out of lockdown, I'm still a bit cognizant of the fact that blind people just touch a lot in the course of our navigating life. You raise a really interesting point, Tiffany, about who verifies, who's the gatekeeper on making the decision about whether somebody qualifies or not. And we handled this in a couple of ways in New Zealand. If you belonged to a disability organization that had a membership number, an identifier of some kind, or there was one advocacy organization that issued a code to all its members from one particular supermarket. And so when you entered that code, it was assumed that you had received it from the disability organization. But in the end, you signed a statutory declaration where you declared that the information you were supplying was true and correct. I mean, I don't know what the penalties are for obviously submitting a false declaration of that nature, but I suppose it's designed to discourage people from submitting a false declaration. So sure, there will be people who abuse it, but you'd like to hope that most people would say, look, I understand the need for this kind of priority service. I wouldn't want my abuse of the system to take away from somebody who had a genuine need. But this is a great topic, and I hope that we might hear from other listeners about how they're getting on with ordering groceries where they are in the world. Is there a priority system for disabled people where you are? Do you wish there were? And if there isn't, how is it all going for you? And that was the first instalment of the Tiffany, 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 Tiffany Report. Mosin at Large Podcast. If you were listening to last week's episode, you'll remember that I was talking at length about the new Sonos Arc. This is the sound bar that Sonos is coming out with. It's a big refresh of the play bar, which was released back in 2012. So it's been much anticipated. And it has Dolby Atmos, which is exciting a lot of people. And I said at the time that I was not going to be plunging into getting a Sonos Arc because of confusion that exists relating to the way that Dolby Atmos is sent by the Apple TV. And whether a television like the one that we had with the uh, standard Arc port would actually receive compressed Dolby Atmos from an Apple TV. I won't repeat all of that because it was quite a long explanation and you can go back and have a listen to the previous episode of Mosin at Large if you didn't hear that explanation. Well, I am actually standing here in the living room at Mosin Towers recording on my Zoom F6 digital field recorder, which I'm still rocking. I absolutely think this was such a cool upgrade to get the Zoom F6. 
and even Neil Ewers, who is the sort of guru, the guru of recorders. He was on the fence as well, but he's got one now, and he loves his as well. He's glad he's he's glad he's got his. So we're all jumping on board. And the reason why I'm in the living room is obviously because there have been developments. I said that I was reluctant to invest in a new television just for the Sonos Arc, and I wasn't going to do this. I would wait for more information. But there's no harm in window shopping, is there? No harm in window shopping at all. So just on the curious side, Heidi and I, who likes to geek out with me, decided we'd do some window shopping. At that stage, we were all still locked down. And so we went online to find out how much a compatible TV would actually cost and also whether there were any in the Sony range that had Android TV and the accessibility that we've become used to at Mosin Towers that actually would do this, had the eARC port. And we found that not only is there a television that has an eARC port, but there's also a television that has AirPlay and HomeKit support. What's more, it's been difficult for businesses to move stock during lockdown, and so there have been some pretty sweet deals on some of this technology. All in all, then, we found a Sony TV with an eARC port, Dolby Atmos support built in, in a firmware update that I understand is still coming, at a very good price. And the combination of that very good price, the fact that AirPlay and HomeKit support was built in and the ability to work with the Sonos Arc unambiguously when it came out, when it comes out, it was all just too much. So I decided to nab this TV. I won't go through a huge demonstration of all the features of the TV and the accessibility features because you may recall that in an episode of The Blind Side that is still available way back in the podcast feed, I did a really extensive demonstration of Android TV and its accessibility, and we actually connected a line to the Sony TV directly, and we did quite a demonstration. So if you're interested in the accessibility of Android TV, pitfalls and benefits, you can go back and have a listen to that. And even though it was recorded in 2017, a lot of it is still relevant. It was all a bit of a I don't know, almost like a, how would you describe it, like an illicit pickup. Not that I've ever done such a thing, but, you know, you can imagine some clandestine deal being done because we ordered the TV online and paid for it with a credit card. And because stores were not open then, the only way you could do it was with click and collect. So Henry, the wonder son-in-law, had to wait for a phone call, which eventually came from the store. And they said, at this appointed time, you can come and pick up the TV. And they exchanged the TV and they kept their physical distancing. And then they brought the TV home. Now, this TV is an upgrade in size from the previous one. The previous TV we had was a 49-inch TV. And as uh, we are two totally blind people who live in the house most of the time, that was perfectly adequate for us. It turns out this is a 55-inch TV. The model number, I believe, is the X8500G. Lots of different model numbers, and they vary around the world. TV models are a bit like printers in this regard that a printer in the US may be slightly different in New Zealand and have a different model number. In the case of televisions, it's justified we have a completely different digital free-to-air platform in New Zealand than many other countries do. We also have a different uh, TV picture standard. One's NTSC and the other is PAL. And so you do need different 
TVs for different markets. So depending on where you live, it's probably unlikely that this particular TV is available, but there will be similar televisions available with similar features. I was not able to find a way that it would be possible for a blind person to set this TV up. Because it's such a huge monstrosity anyway, it's unlikely to be something that you'll get home in a cab or an Uber, and certainly not on the bus. So chances are you would have somebody install this TV for you anyway, and it would be a good idea to get them to install it and at least get you to a point where the screen reader is on. There's accessibility features in settings. Now, I mentioned this in my very extensive previous look at the Sony TV we had before. The Sony Android TV actually has two screen readers built in. One is TalkBack, which is a familiar name in Android land, and it's the screen reader that is built into Android devices. This is a special version of TalkBack that is made for TVs. I wouldn't recommend running TalkBack on this Sony TV or any Sony TV that I've come across. And the reason for that is that although TalkBack has some nice features, the TV guide is not accessible with TalkBack. If you want to find out what's on your free-to-air TV, then you're going to have to run the Sony screen reader, which is simply called Screen Reader, and that does work very nicely with the guide. I haven't done a lot of work on this with the new TV, but it looks very similar, so I have no reason to believe it's not possible. With the old TV, we could certainly plug a USB drive into the TV. There are several USB ports. There are also four HDMI ports, one of which is the much-anticipated HDMI eARC port. We got a Western Digital Drive dedicated to this purpose. You plug it into a USB port, it formats the drive and encrypts what you record. But you can actually then go into the guide and find a program you want and record it. Set it for time and record and the TV will turn on and record at the pre-appointed time. Because the recordings are encrypted to your TV, they'll only be playable on your TV. You won't be able to play them on other devices and that's all a digital rights management thing. So having the TV guide work is really important and so I would recommend using the Sony screen reader rather than TalkBack. When you do that, you can navigate most parts of the TV, but a lot of the apps for Android TV do not appear accessible with the Sony screen reader. To be fair, it's a bit of a rigmarole to have to switch back and forth between the TalkBack and Sony screen reader. So I haven't found out whether some of the apps that are not performing well or at all with the Sony screen reader might do better with TalkBack. For example, I did have some luck with the Netflix app on our previous TV, but the Netflix app on this TV It did start in a promising way. It allowed us to sign in, but then we couldn't navigate any of the menus. We couldn't choose programs with the Netflix app. So you'll probably want to have some third-party thing plugged into the HDMI port, whether it be an Amazon Fire device or, in our case, an Apple TV, and that is the best way to watch content. And if you are going to go down the Sonos Arc route, then it will mean that you'll be able to connect your Sonos Arc to the eARC port on this TV and with an Apple TV you will definitely be able to get Dolby Atmos content and you should also be able to get Dolby Atmos content from Blu-ray if you have a Blu-ray player plugged into the TV as well as long as you use that 
all-important EARC port, which is certainly the way of the future. We don't yet have the Sonos Arc, of course, because that's not due for release until the 10th of June. But we have set up the Apple TV in our HomeKit ecosystem. And the way that we did that was that we went into settings. We did have to download a firmware update first. So when we set this TV up, it was not showing up as an AirPlay device. Oh, bother. But we went in and we found that there was a firmware update. And once that firmware update was installed, then we were golden and the AirPlay features were showing up in settings. You can simply set it up as an AirPlay device. And most people, I think, who have Apple things are familiar with how AirPlay works. Sometimes there's an AirPlay button in an app that you're using, but you can usually go into Control Center and find the AirPlay controls there and send your audio and video, depending on the kind of device you're using, to another device. So that's pretty easy to set up. Going with HomeKit takes you one step further. And to make that work, you have to scan a QR code that's on the screen of your TV. So you go into the Home app, which is built into iOS. You add an accessory. And then when the barcode or the QR code is on the TV screen, you point your rear-facing camera at the TV and it captures the QR code and then it will add it to your home. I should say that in our case, it wasn't quite that simple. It was that simple for me. So once I did that on my iPhone and we used the QR code and added it, the TV was showing up in my home app. But obviously, it's important that Bonnie have access as well. And it wasn't showing up for her. It also wasn't showing up for Heidi or Henry who have access to the home. And we found that what we had to do was remove those other people Bonnie and Heidi and Henry from the home and then add them again. We tried rebooting the phone and all sorts of other tricks, but it wasn't until we removed them and added them again that the TV showed up. So all that was a bit time consuming to figure out. But now that we got that far, it is all working pretty well. So what are the benefits of doing that? Well, I'm going to take my iPhone out of my pocket and I'm, I'm holding a microphone in one hand. So I'm going to hold the phone in the other and just turn it on. Three notifications. Now, we can say, for example, turn on the TV. Okay. The TV's coming on. It will take a while for the Sonos to wake up. There we go. of our country. And your livelihood has been threatened. And, and the TV is now on. This is quite a directional microphone I have, so I'm just getting close to the sound bar here. So the TV is now on, and one thing that is different about this TV is that the output of the screen reader is set to the soundbar, whereas before the output would come over the TV speaker. I far prefer this because it means that when I have an assistive listening device connected to the TV, I'm getting the speech through it. And um, that's that's much better because um, the, the assistive listening device is actually connected to the Sonos. So I've effectively turned my hearing aids into a Sonos device thanks to a device called the Sonos Port, which is the successor to the Sonos Connect. So that's all very good. I'll just turn the TV off for the moment. 
turn TV off. Here we go. The TV is off. Now, I haven't found any Siri commands that will allow me to switch inputs on this thing. So I can't, to the best of my knowledge, say switch the TV to Apple TV or set TV to HDMI 2 or anything like that. But Home does know about different inputs. So I'm going to open the Home app, open Home. You'll need to unlock your iPhone first. I'm sorry, I thought I'd done that. There you go. Home. Right. So now I am in the home app. So I'm going to go to the top of the screen. Mosin Towers. Heading. And here's the heading Mosin Towers because we're in our home here. Add and edit homes. Button. Edit. Button. Add. Button. Mosin Towers. Heading. Kitchen stove outlet not responding. We have here on the home tab of the home app, if you're with me, because there are a bunch of tabs at the bottom. In fact, I'll just show you those. Selected. Home. Tab, rooms, tab, automation, tab, three of three. So we have home, rooms, and automation. If we go into the rooms tab, then you can drill down by individual room, and that's why it's important to assign every accessory that you add to your home to the correct room, because you can also use Siri commands for this. All of the lights at Mosin Towers are also integrated with the home app. So, for example, I can say, turn on the lights in the living room. Okay. And now all the lights in the living room are on, and we've got quite a few lights here in the living room, and I don't have any light perception at all, so I can't tell whether the lights are on or not. And this is a really cool thing about the home app as well. I can say, are the living room lights on? Your lights are on. But I can also say, are the master bedroom lights on? Your master bedroom light is off. I can confirm the status of all the lights in the house. Now I'll just turn those off. Turn off the living room lights. Okay. We have our Sonos devices that are AirPlay compatible connected here. And of course, the Sonos Arc is also AirPlay compatible, so that works as well. And just to confirm, by the way, I can now say, are the living room lights on? Your lights are off. Here we go. So now we confirm that the living room lights are off. So that's all very handy. We have a stove outlet. You would have heard that briefly referenced when we were on the home tab. And the reason we have that, and it's switched off actually at the the switch on the stove right now but it means for example that if we're going to use the crock pot you know slow cooking type device we can load up the crock pot and if the crock pot should be on say for eight hours and we intend to eat at about 6 p.m then at 10 a.m one of us from our respective offices can say turn the stove on and it will turn that outlet on because it's a smart outlet and the crock pot will start Selected. Home. Tab. Now we're back on the Line home three. tab. Mosin Towers. Add and edit. Add. Button. Mosin Towers. He- kitchen stove outlet not re- details. Favorite accessories. Heading. And I've got a set of favorite accessories here that we normally want to either check on or control. So if I flick right. TV. Living room. Off. Button. And here's the TV in Action the living room. Available. And it's currently set to off. If I just double tap that. TV. 
living room, TV. And now it's switched on. I'm going to flick down now. And I'll just make sure that's audible enough for everybody. Activate. Open controls. Open controls. Kitchen. Button. Current mode. TV. Picker item. Adjustable. Swipe up or down with one finger to adjust the value. Right here, we have the current mode for the TV. So if I flick up. Living room. External input screen. And you heard eloquence on the TV confirm that we've changed inputs and it said inter external input screen. Button. Current mode. Living room. Picker item. Adjustable. Playback underscore one. Apple TV. HDMI 2. HDMI 3. So I'm flicking selection. through the inputs on the TV. HDMI 4. And although I haven't found a way to control the inputs via Siri, I do believe you should be able to set the input with a scene. One of the really nice things about home automation, and this applies whether you're using scenes in Apple Home or routines in the Alexa ecosystem, the Amazon Echo ecosystem, is that you can string a whole series of things together based on a certain trigger. It could be you arriving at home, it could be a time of day, it could be sunset, or it could be a command. So you should be able to set this up to switch to a particular input with a command that's associated with a scene, for example. HDMI 3, Yerk slash arc. Button. Current mode. HDMI 3, Yerk slash arc. Picker item. At HDMI 2. What I sometimes find is that I have to take focus away and back to keep navigating. Current mode. HDMI Apple TV. There's the Apple TV. You can name your inputs. So as we connect more things to the TV, we might name these inputs things like Xbox, Blu-ray, and rather than the cryptic names like HDMI 1, we'd actually know what we were setting it to. So that's pretty nice. Playback underscore one. And the next one. Current mode. Living room. TV. TV menu. And there's... There's the TV responding again with TV. So I'm just going to turn the TV off. Turn off the TV. Now, if we flip through here. Television. Button. TV. Text field. Delby tap to edit. You can change the name of the accessory here. It's currently just called TV. We only have one. Clear text. Button. Room. Living room. Button. Toggle options. Including favorites. On. Status. Button. Input, heading, TV, dimmed, Apple TV, HDMI, and here's the list HDMI, of inputs HDMI, again. Video, AirPlay, view TV settings. This will open settings on your TV where you can view and select from additional options. So you can go into the settings from here. Suggested scenes, two, button, manufacturer, Sony, serial number, full model, KD55X8500G. And there's the uh, 8500G. So there's quite a bit that you can do from here. I should also say that one of the really cool accessibility enhancements of this TV that we didn't have on the previous TV is that audio description is officially supported using our free-to-air standard. And you can now control the balance between the volume of the program 
and the volume of the audio description. And that setting pertains just to free-to-air content. I have seen this on other TVs before, but it wasn't on the previous Sony that we had. So that is a really nice feature. The remote control on the TV itself is pretty easy to use. The buttons are very tactile, very distinctive, although there are a lot of them. So I have a cheat sheet in Ulysses that reminds me of what button does what, and that's always at hand on the iPhone, so I know what I'm doing if I need to do something on the remote. It also does have the Google Assistant built in, so if I press the button on the remote to turn the TV back on again, and there we go, the TV is back on. I find that I have to press the button once just to kind of wake it up. 236. Designated Survivor Official Trailer, ABC three years ago. That was me playing with uh, the voice assistant. I could not get it to play an item from Netflix, even though I've linked our Netflix account on the TV. So I was a bit disappointed with that. But you do have Google Assistant here, so you can hold down the button and you can say things like, what's the weather forecast today? Today in Wellington, it'll be mostly cloudy with a forecasted high of 13 and a low of 9. Right, right. now it's 11 degrees and mostly cloudy. Well, I will um, say that's that's pretty cool. And the speech is very nice. I have got Eloquence set up, as you can hear. So it's great to know that Eloquence is still running on Android TV. I'll just turn the TV off with the button on the remote control. In terms of other platforms, I have been sort of a bit underwhelmed by what I'm able to do or what I'm not able to do with the Google ecosystem. Although it's true to say we don't own any Google Home devices here other than the access we have to the iOS Google Home app. I have had it recognize the TV and I have linked, as I say, our Netflix account I haven't been able to make much progress in terms of commands like turn the TV on or turn the TV off with Google Assistant. Maybe when we get the Sonos Arc, which we obviously are definitely getting now, and we set that up initially to try anyway as a Google Home device, because we already have an Echo in this room, it'll be interesting to see how much we can control when we really have a device and not just the iOS app. The Soup Drinker devices, the Amazon Echoes, it's a little bit disappointing because I understand that if you can link your Sony Android TV with the Soup Drinker using the skill that's available in the skills store, you can actually change channels on the TV with it. Now, this is something I haven't been able to find a way to do with HomeKit. You can select inputs and all sorts of things like that, but you don't appear to be able to actually change channels. Who'd have thought that people might actually want to do that, watch good old-fashioned free-to-air TV and change the channel? Now, I understand that with the Echo skill, you can do that. The only trouble is we have not been able to get the soup drinker talking to the TV at all. And this is using, as recommended by Sony, the Sony Android TV skill. When... I looked at the reviews for this skill. It gets about two stars, and the most common comment is, it can't find my TV. And I have to say, I add to this, 
it can't find our TV. So we're very disappointed because we, we've got uh, the, the soup drink everywhere in our house. We very much uh, are Alexa fans, and so it's been disappointing that we haven't been able to uh, get that working at this point, especially given that you can apparently change channels. It would be really sweet to be able to just say to it when you're watching uh, on the couch, change the channel to five or whatever it might be, and it will do that. But all in all, a good upgrade for us. It is a bit disappointing about the Netflix app seemingly having become inaccessible, but it's not a showstopper for us because most of the time, if we're watching that kind of content, we can do so through the Apple TV. And now that we have the EARC port, once we get the Sonos Arc, we will be able to have Dolby Atmos sent to the new Sonos Arc. So that's going to be really good. The HomeKit integration is fantastic. You know, I'd like to see the ability to change channels and a couple of other things, but it really is nice. And it's great to be able to link the uh, television with a whole lot of other functions that you might want to perform at the same time. And AirPlay is good as well. I haven't talked much about AirPlay, but as you can appreciate, if you are showing a photo to someone and you just want to quickly display that photo on the TV and there it is on your phone, it's really nice. You could do it with the Apple TV connected before, of course, but you would have to make sure that the input is set to Apple TV. So this is all much more seamless. You can play YouTube clips that way and all kinds of stuff like that. So it is a really nice integration that they've done with Apple HomeKit and AirPlay support. And of course, for those in Android land or with apps that support it, this TV is, by virtue of it being an Android TV, a Google Chromecast device as well. So you are able to cast with Chromecast any content as well. So with this TV, you have all the boxes ticked. You've got accessibility to some degree. You've got Chromecast, you've got AirPlay, and you're as future-proofed as you can be in this industry with the EARC port for very high bandwidth transmission to devices like the forthcoming Sonos Arc. Sometimes the low-tech solution works effectively, and Aaron has come in in response to the inquiry that we got earlier about working from home from Louise and being able to hear your iPhone and your computer from the same source. And he makes a very good point. He says, regarding hearing the audio from the mobile phone, what I do is I have my phone connected to my laptop slash PC via line in. Then I have a USB sound card. This way, I don't have to use a mixer. That's right. So you will have to have some sort of audio device that will let you hear the line in. There are some cases where you can't. There are some cases where you can only record the line in, but you can't hear the line in coming back. So if that works for you, that is a really cool, quite an expensive solution. Gino J is here as well. Gino J. And he says, if your listeners are looking for a cheap mixer, might I suggest the Behringer? Now, I don't know how to pronounce this. I thought it was Behringer, but then sometimes when I listen to reviews on YouTube, I hear Behringer. But I'm pretty sure it is Behringer. I don't know. Uh, anyway, it's the uh, UM2, he's suggesting. He says it has two quarter-inch jacks that also are XLRs. Yep, so that's good. I like those jacks that do the double duty. And... um. 
Unfortunately, the Zoom F6 does not have those, while the H6 does. The only other accessories needed, says Gino, would be quarter-inch to 3.5 adapters. I have it daisy-chained to my mixer and like it. It's USB. Thank you very much, Gino. Yeah, there are some cute little mixers out there. So um, they don't have to cost you a bomb. And just before, so Bonnie is here. We'll make sure she gets a chance to be positioned by the mic so she's not fumbling with the mic all all the time during the Bonnie Bulletin. Uh, So let's just get a couple of emails done. First of all, here is Jeremy Schmidt on the email. And he says... Hi, I just heard you talking about using a mixer for more than one audio source in your office. I've been recently thinking about doing this very thing. Which mixer do you have? I'm really sorry, Jeremy, I don't remember. But it's a real cheap bearing a mixer. I mean, it's really just very, very low cost. In the US, you'd you'd almost certainly be able to pick it up for under $100. It's not fancy at all. Also... In regard to microphones, I saw the Blue Yeti on sale and I just heard you talking about that one. Do you think that's a better microphone than, for example, the SM58? Oh, gosh, I think it depends on your use case. The thing about the Blue Yeti is it's a Swiss army knife of microphones because you've got this switch on the Yeti that effectively turns it into many different microphones by virtue of the different patterns that you have on the Yeti. So it can be very quite directional. It can be stereo where the front of the mic is the left channel and the back is the right or or Vicky Vicky. I can't remember which. Uh, It has all sorts of things. It can be mono where uh, both sides of the mic are working. It's really quite a versatile mic. It is a condenser mic. So you can be some distance away from it and it will pick up sound generally. The thing about the uh, SM58 is it's a dynamic mic. I've not used it myself, but it's a dynamic mic. And so you're going to have to get up close and personal with that mic and, and be right in front of it. And so that would be good if you want to use it for the kind of thing that I'm using it for, you know, podcast, well, I'm using microphones for podcasting, radio work, that kind of stuff. If you want a mic that you might be able to use in a variety of situations, I mean, you can use the Yeti for recording music. You can use it for interviews at a pinch if you gather around the mic and position it correctly. So the Yeti is very versatile, but uh, certainly if you if you want a really good sound from a microphone and just have one purpose in mind, Go for uh, go for the share if you like the sound of it. For example, if I was using a Yeti Pro, say, plugged into my Zoom F6, that demo would have been a bit easier to record because you could have turned on the uh, the wider pattern and captured the sound of the phone and the TV a bit better. So it really does require you to think about what you're using it for. <laughs> Bonnie Mosin, welcome Hello. to you. Hi, how are you? How's I'm, everyone? I'm unlocked. Cool. You're unlocked. Yep. We're all unlocked. Mm-hmm. The lockdown ended on Thursday and people have been heading out. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I read in the paper yesterday was that they really have been surprised by how few people have ventured out 
to places like restaurants and that sort of thing. People were all excited about the takeaways and the deliveries Mm -hmm. being established when we went to level three. But they've coined a new term. So they said that, of course, we've heard of FOMO, the fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. And now there's a fear of going Going out. out, And there are a lot of people who are just not that excited about going out. They're all at the mall, that I can tell you. Well, there you go. I've seen a lot of people and apparently – North City and Queensgate were packed yesterday. So right. They're all so, in the mall. It, yeah. So it seems they may to be. They're not going in the city, but they're all in the mall. What's happening, it seems, is that people are willing to go shopping for yeah, things, but, not but they're not eating at restaurants yeah. and stuff. They've got a taste for this eating from home malarkey. Yeah. It is a much more complex world for blind people out there. So when I went to buy a TV cabinet, because our new monstrosity does not fit the old TV cabinet, you had to sign in to the furniture store. And one of the areas where I think New Zealand has dropped the ball, and there aren't many in the COVID-19 sense, but we don't have a global contact tracing app. And I really hope that the reason for that is that we are waiting for the official Google and Apple API so we can have one contact tracing app to rule them all that we all should yeah. be putting on our phones, but we don't at the moment. So when you go to some stores, you have to sign in with just a physical book, you know, grab mm-hmm. a pen and sign it. And obviously you need assistance as a blind person to sign in and sign out. So when yeah. I went to the furniture store, you had to sign in with your name, your phone number and your email address. I suspect this is another thing that might not fly in the United States. And then when you had done your shopping, you had to sign out with the time that you were leaving. I haven't had to do that yet. You haven't had to sign out? No, I haven't had to sign out. I had to sign in, but I haven't had to sign out. The health store was – they have like a table blocking the door pretty much. And they have a hand-washing thing and they have a book there. I mean, they they all kind of know me in the mall, so that's to my advantage. So I walked in, and it, there was several people in there, and I, I heard them telling someone that they wash their hands. So I just grabbed my hand sanitizer and did it because I carry I always carry hand sanitizer anyway. I told them what I was looking for, and then they signed me in and got my mobile phone and email, which now the entire whoever's listening knows my mobile phone and email, but that's, that's okay. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there, that, that that is that is very true. So there yeah. are some. It's one thing to kind of write it down in some sort of secure way, yeah. But to actually have to speak your phone number and email address in a crowded store, yeah. Michael, we don't seem to have as many pervs here in New Zealand. No, as we... I'm not so sure. <laughs> but but anyway, um, if I start getting spam mail, I'll know where. I went there, and then I went to Subway. I went to the warehouse, and they didn't do anything. So um, the warehouse stationery, but I just walked in and. Did they take my oh, – I paid, so they obviously have my name. So then I went to Subway, and they are using some sort of QR code? Yes. So that's where I was going next. Sometimes you sign in physically on a good old-fashioned piece of paper, but because we don't have a universal, globally government sort of mandated contact tracing app yet, mm-hmm. uh, a number of businesses have taken this into their own hands, and there are some very entrepreneurial peeps. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Wellington City Council has got behind an app called Ripple, and they're actually they've they've got a deal with the developers of this Ripple app, I believe it's spelled R-I-P-P-L. And they have paid for three-month 
licenses of this app to any business who wants it. Mm-hmm. And this is a QR code thing. So you um, you walk in there with your phone. I believe what happens is you, you scan the QR code and then it takes you to a web page for the business. Yeah, where that's you, what it does. Yeah, where you, you fill in your details. Which is still going to be difficult on some levels for a blind person because you're going to have to go into the busy store. You're going to have to go where the QR code is, find it, and then fill in all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, yes. finding the QR code could be a bit of a mission depending on its size. Okay. And then not everybody uses Braille screen input. So if you're sitting there with – you're trying to enter it with the – um the QWERTY keyboard yeah. uh, on the on the phone, the, the virtual keyboard, that's going to take a while. So there is a lack of consistency mm-hmm. about what information they're collecting and how it's being collected. And then when you've signed in, you also, that they typically have a nice big bottle of hand sanitizer mm-hmm. that, uh, and, and usually the sign-in desk is being staffed. So they would expect you to sign in and then give yourself a good sanitizing before you're allowed to proceed further into the store. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's quite dystopian, really. Yeah. Um, but I guess we can't argue with the fact that for four out of the last seven days, we've had zero cases. Yeah. And then we've only had one or two, and we know where they're coming from. So we've got this virus beast. It's just quite, quite difficult. And, and I think as people start to return to offices, some are being asked to and some are being told, well, come back if you want to. Yeah. If you can work from home, you're welcome to. It depends on the business. But I think we're all becoming really conscious of just how many things blind people touch in the course of just knowing where they are. Yeah. Yeah, you touch stuff all the time. I mean, it's it, – and people touch you. You know, that's that's another thing. They touch you. It doesn't matter about social distancing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They want to sort that, of steer you. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I did notice the other day at the mall is there's not a lot of – I mean, people aren't getting up in your face, but they're not keeping two meters away or whatever you're supposed to be doing. The – Muffin break, their tables are spread out, so that's good. I mean, that, they, Yeah, they, they are required by law that, to be spread but out. But people yeah. are just kind of, you know, doing their thing. I mean, it's it'll be interesting tomorrow when I take the bus in what's going to go on. Because there weren't that many people on the bus Thursday and Friday. Supposedly, they're not supposed to take over 20. I don't know how this is going to work on these big double-deckers. But I think some people are probably still not going in, so it'll be, it'll yeah, be were, interesting. Yes, there, w- there was some suggestion that our bus service just isn't equipped to uh, handle this. The our bus real- service has never been equipped to handle <laughs> anything, the, so, you know. <laughs> the really interesting thing is that until the end of June, taxi travel is free yeah, for… Which I can't take. Right disabled people, but you, your card has broken. My card. Yeah. It was so strange. I got on the bus Thursday, and the, our, bu- our taxi card is also a bus card. So I tagged on to the bus, even though the buses are free. I'm not sure how long the buses are free till. I think also till the end of June. Yeah. I believe that's Auckland's right. Auckland's are not, apparently. Um, but they still want you to tag on. So I'm not sure if they're tracing something there. I suspect it's a contact tracing issue. Ridership yeah. or what. Yeah. But So I tagged on, no problem. Then when I was getting off, I mean, and, and usually sometimes the machines act up. But usually it makes a noise. So it, you know that it's just being silly. Nothing. And I'm like, okay. So 
I then got in the cab to come home and it wouldn't work. I'm like, okay. So I called the council. Oh, well, give it another try. I'm like, well, I don't think it's going to work, but okay, whatever. Because it didn't work on the bus and it didn't work on the cab. So that tells me something's wrong. So I got on the bus and it wouldn't work. And the driver took it. You know, nope. <laughs> he took the car and touched it and tried yeah, it Yeah, exactly. So, um... And he goes, yeah, he goes, what happens is sometimes the wires get bent or something because there's a, like a wire that goes around the card that when you tap the, the taxi or the bus and and he goes, I said something, and, oh, you know more than the council. And he just said, oh, well, they're useless. So <laughs> they do not like the council. So didn't work. So call them and it'll be a few days because they have to order it from somewhere. Yeah. So when I do travel, I'm back to using taxis for now yeah. because obviously it's free. And yep. uh, that's that's pretty impressive. So we we appreciate that. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I noticed when I was hooning around, both at the furniture store that I went to and at, at a cafe where I went for lunch, in neither case was a contactless payment available, and so we had to pay with you know, the FPOS card, the money card. I don't think the US uses the term FPOS, which stands for Electronic Fund Transfer at a Point of Sale. And so you had to you had to use the card into the pen, you know, touch the keypad. Yeah. The first thing I should say is, can we just abolish money? Can we just abolish cash well, the, right the now? Well, the bus is no longer going to take cash. Yeah, I mean, it's disgusting. I mean, cash even was before, disgusting and filthy at the best of times. Um, yeah, I mean, can we just stop? There's there's no reason for why can't we all just move to some contactless system? Now some places that didn't have it before the muffin break, or maybe I don't know, maybe I haven't been to the muffin break in a long time. But the muffin break, and some other place had pay wave right this time. Maybe which, the muffin break has I don't know. But and whenever there's pay wave, that equals Apple Pay, which is yeah. wonderful because you just pay with your watch and your phone. So I think what's happening is that. In the past, the, the great financial institutions that run these things used to charge merchants a premium they for offering They charge a it. lot of money. Yeah. And now I think, at least temporarily, they've waived that fee. Mm-hmm. But the government, which is basically regulating the world here at the moment, um, just needs to tell them to stop. The other thing is, so I was at home. I was doing my rowing machine and my treadmill and everything and keeping fit. But I was at home for a, little, a couple of days under eight weeks. And when I went in a moving vehicle and then I got to place where, places where there are other people, it was actually quite a sensory overload. And you were commenting on the sound of planes, which we oh, never yeah, had before. They, they, the planes, I mean, planes have still been flying. But, but they're not, like cargo. But they're cargo yeah. and a few passenger planes. Yeah. But um, we're right in the flight pattern of Wellington Airport. So you notice them when they're not there. But yesterday, I guess it was the Thursday and Friday and Saturday, it was like, my God, there's planes yeah. getting on my nerves. Yeah, yeah. There were so many of them. Mm. And the other day I was working and I heard this horrible noise. And I'm like, what on earth is that? I think it was Thursday. Maybe it was Wednesday. I don't remember. That was probably the smorgasbord. No, it was awful. And it was getting louder. And I'm like, is that a bunch of helicopters or what on earth is it and i'm like do i need to duck under the desk i mean it was is this like the mother of all earthquakes coming or something and then i figured out it was the street sweeper and i haven't heard it in a long time and it was loud 
the, the, yes, and it, it's the little things. Do yeah. it's the, little, the, the, the the great celebration around here was that for the first time in eight weeks or seven weeks, we actually got our recycling collected yeah. yesterday. Oh my goodness! It's starting to look like an episode of Hoarders. Oh man! And people were getting their hair cut. That actually made the U.S. paper. Some guy in Christchurch. Opened his barber shop at midnight. At midnight. Yeah. 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 So yeah. That yeah. The the haircut places are just. It's like the supermarket. Yeah. There are lines so long yeah. at the haircut. I, and I must admit, I haven't done mine yet and I need to. My God. Yeah. But then, you know, I, we talked on the smorgasbord about blind people who have said, well, yeah, we do so much without sight. Why can't we cut our hair by touch? And so mm. some blind people have cut their hair by touch. No, thank you. I'm just not brave mm-hmm. enough to to try that. No, no, thank you. Yeah, so so things are starting to wake up, um, but I think we feel very proud that we obviously really shut down. I mean, we really did, and still, when anyone ever, well, at the moment, only New Zealanders or, or residents who who have resident status can even come into the country. Yeah, but everybody has to go into quarantine mm-hmm. for 14 days, and I suspect eventually we'll get to a point where. We will let tourists back from some countries, but they will all have to do a 14-day yeah. quarantine. Um, and that's how we're looking at it until there's a vaccine. Let's hope, they, let's hope we get one. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Here's me now. Usually on those meetings that are set for 30 minutes but end up dragging on for four hours, I use an over-the-ear headset. The consequence of this is that after the meeting ends, I end up with a, with a headache, with an headache, with an headache. Recently, I thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if I had a separate mic that sounded just as good, if not better, than my headset mic? but I could still wear my iPhone earpods to keep the pressure off my head. I bought a lapel mic for only $20, and it sounds superb, so wanted to recommend it here for anyone who's tired of the headsets. The mic has an on-off switch, so you can actually mute yourself from the mic itself instead of relying on software-based mute options. It's called the Movo Universal. That's M-O-V-O Universal USB Microphone for computer with USB adapter compatible with laptop, desktop, PC and Mac, smartphones, cameras, podcasting, remote work and laptop microphone. It's got a 20-foot cord. Oh, my word. And he has included an Amazon link, which I will include in the show notes for the podcast. He continues, I wear the mic for at least eight hours a day. And once you clip it on, it won't move. It also comes with a windscreen, which works effectively. It does require batteries, but I haven't had to change mine since I bought it a month ago. That's good stuff. Yes, I am a big fan of these lapel mics. I have a um, considerably uh, more expensive one, but it it plugs into my mixer, uh, my Sony uh, microphone. And I I agree. I think that those microphones are a really nice solution uh, if you kind of get fatigued from 
wearing headsets, microphone headsets all the time. And it's certainly better than what a lot of people do, which is to use the built-in microphones of their laptops and tablets. And unfortunately, they sound horrible. Horrible is what they sound. So thank you, Minowa, and I will include the link in the show notes for the podcast. But that's uh, that's a great idea. Good morning, Jonathan. It's Petra, and I just had a problem. I was going to listen to the Mosin Explosion on my AirPods with my iPhone SE2, and the uh, Siri says, here's uh, Mushroom FM, and nothing comes out. It's not playing any sound. The A-Lady is doing just fine. Wondered if you had any solutions. Thank you. Love your show. It's getting awfully technical, but it sure makes me think about expanding my technology <laughs> expertise. Ooh. Bye. Bye, Petra. Uh, yes, I do have a suggestion for you. Phone me and tell me about the problem, and that will fix it, I'm sure. Because in my experience, what happens is, you know, you you, you, you call someone up with some sort of problem like that, and they say... Um, just do it one more time for me, and then you go, oh, oh, it works after all, so try that and see if it works. Who's next? Wouldn't you know it? I tried it again for the ninth time, and it worked. See? It's Petra. See? Yep, call the repairman, and whatever you wanted to repair is fixed. Yes. Love your show. Wah. Bye. Oh, and, and, and the karma too, Petra. Love the show, love the karma. I am the repairman. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Hmm. Hello, Jonathan. It's Jesse Trigarson calling from Canada. Hi, Jesse. Uh, first of all, I want to say that I am here with my son, uh, three-year-old son, Obsidian, who I might say enjoys your podcast uh, considerably more even than the podcast that I produce. Oh, dear. So yeah. You have the honor of having my son's rapt attention. Uh, I just wanted to make a quick comment on the mask discussion in that I agree with you about the masks. I think being behind a piece of cloth with all that recycled air of yours is a trouble. And I think that the entire mask discussion is uh, a little bit moot, a moot point, because it seems this is a virus spread by touch, not by air. So it seems to me the bigger discussion should be on gloves uh, then on masks. We seem to keep talking about masks, but, but it seems to be that gloves is what we should be talking about and sanitization and proper hand washing because that's how the virus is mostly spread. And then maybe just masks if you're coughing to, to keep from spreading droplets. But mandatory masks everywhere you go, I, I don't really see the benefit of that. Thank you very much, Jesse. Nice to hear from you. In regards to your three-year-old son, nice to, nice to know that I've got a little three-year-old fan out there. That's nice. Now, I, I do think it's important that we be very careful about the information we disseminate regarding COVID-19. My understanding is that the reason why touching things is not a good idea is because the virus is actually spread by droplets, 
And so sometimes when you're close to surfaces and you're breathing, you might be coughing or something terrible like that, the droplets can be on surfaces and the virus survives. But equally, this is why social distancing or physical distancing is so important, that when you get within a meter or two of somebody and they have the virus and they potentially talk to you and, and, and breathe on you, they could be disseminating droplets that are contaminated with the virus. So, you know, it's 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 important that we follow those rules. And I, I do have to say, if uh, there should be no one at this point at all, no one out there with a cough or a sniffle or anything like that. If anybody has anything like that going on, then we have a responsibility to stay at home for our own good, but most importantly, for the good of other people that we might infect. Uh, I, I just don't know about the mask thing. I find it fascinating. I have received several emails this week, some from people who have said, here's the compelling evidence that you're looking for, uh, that say that masks are absolutely necessary and they work. And I've had links to some very learned publications. And then I've had emails from people saying exactly the opposite and sending me to what also appear to be learned applications. And obviously here in New Zealand, we've got a, a lot of control over this virus. I believe we are right up there with uh, Taiwan in terms of countries that the two countries who have most effectively dealt with the virus. So we, we're taking the advice of our Director General of Health, but I think the best thing one can do at this moment is um, take the advice of health officials in your country, not politicians necessarily, but health officials, if they're being allowed to speak, know what I mean. There's a little bit of censorship going on in the land of the free right now. I have talked on the show about how meditation, mindfulness has really changed my life. And it's great to hear from people who also feel the same way, that they have adopted a regular meditation practice, a mindfulness practice, and just the, the many benefits that it has brought to them. And a few episodes ago, we spoke with uh, Liam from FitMind, and FitMind was offering to give away the full unlocked paid version of their app to anybody who could genuinely not afford to pay for it, which I thought was a very generous offer. There's also, of course, Headspace, which is a household name, really. They've done very well for themselves. And I see this week that Headspace is making its premium mindfulness and meditation app free for all people who are now unemployed in the United States. The deal is available through headspace.com slash unemployed. That's headspace.com slash unemployed. And it relies on the honor system for verification. People have to fill out their name, where they previously worked, what they did, where they live, and their last date of employment. Then they have to check a box to verify what they're claiming is true. From there, they'll have access to all of Headspace's content, even that which is usually only available to paying subscribers. The offer is available until June the 30th, and the free access lasts for an entire year. Headspace has made its content free for a variety of audiences 
Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, it offered its premium subscription content to healthcare providers who work in public health in the US as well as Los Angeles residents. It also created a landing page for New Yorkers with specific exercises for them to do. So headspace.com slash unemployed if you would like to take advantage of that offer. Have you got one of those new shiny iPad things with the new uh, Apple Magic Keyboard? That's the one with the trackpad designed for the iPad. Well, some people are reporting massive battery drain on those things. So if that's happening to you, let us know. Hopefully, it's a teething issue. So what happens is you, you turn your Magic Keyboard on and the battery on your iPad takes a big hit. So let us know how you're getting on if you're one of those people who have delved in to the iPad uh, with the Magic Keyboard. I have to say that iPad's going through a bit of a bad patch as a result of COVID-19 because many people are saying that the position of the front-facing camera on the iPad and certain restrictions like not many iPad apps allow you to do video conferencing while you have a look at another app, and often you need to do that. You need to go into a document and read from something or take notes. And many of the uh, conferencing apps do not have the access that's required to, say, have a little bit of the iPad screen where the video is continuing. So PCs are back, man. PCs are back. People are realizing how useful real laptops are in this pandemic situation. Google has announced a new tab grouping feature that's coming to the Google Chrome browser. If you are on the beta track with Google, you may be seeing this already. It lets you better organize your tabs. So if you've got a lot of tabs open at the same time, you can group a whole lot of tabs into one sort of tab group or like a kind of a folder situation. And this is really fascinating to me because I'm clearly a very unusual browser user. I tend not to have many tabs open at all. I might have two or three open at a time, but it sounds like I'm just way behind the times and that a lot of people, when they run their browser these days, have a squillion tabs open with all sorts of useful websites and then they just navigate between the tabs. I wonder if this is a sighted thing that it's easy to do visually than a screen reader a screen reader thing or whether I'm just, as I say, behind the times. But people seem very excited about this tab grouping thing that is coming to Google Chrome. Does that float your boat? Does it push your buttons? You're excited about being able to say group a whole lot of tabs into one and then just get to it with a, a click? I, I guess I can see the use for it. It would involve a lot of habitual change for me. And the final thing I wanted to mention in tech news this week is that Apple News Plus is considering adding audio versions of some stories. Publishers are skeptical about whether people actually want this feature or not, but Apple thinks that they might. And unfortunately, whether they do or whether they don't won't make a lot of difference to me personally because Apple's is the most restrictive of all of these news aggregator services. We can download the Google News from the App Store. We can also download the Microsoft equivalent, their news app from the App Store. But the built-in Apple News app is nowhere to be found in New Zealand 
if you have your location set to New Zealand. You can, of course, change your location even to Australia or the United States or the UK. I think Canada has it now as well. But for some really strange reason, Apple doesn't think New Zealanders want news. And we're by far uh, not alone. There are many countries where the Apple News app is not available, where the equivalent app from Google and Microsoft is. And of course, I still have my trusty RSS reader. But if you're not paying for Apple News Plus right now, which is their premium service and has been struggling a bit, apparently, would you pay for Apple News Plus if you could get a human narrator reading articles to you? That'd be an interesting one to explore. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin FM.